1230, so we need to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Hope you enjoyed your lunch, and it's neat to see new faces here. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're glad you're here. Welcome. The way uh, this is done is that every week we, uh, the food usually is put out right in the at or before 12. Come in, eat, meet people, talk, uh, visit, and at 12.30 we start the teaching. Um, the food is provided by Ruth's Chris as a service from this restaurant. The owner wants to do this as a way to give back to this community in this area. And um, we just ask that you leave a tip, leave a donation, because it all goes to the ladies who fixed all this food for us. So uh, be generous with that in proportion to their generosity for us. We're in the book of Exodus. <clears throat> if you have been following along, you know we're in chapter three. If you haven't been following along, we record, that's why the camera's right there, we record each week and it's put on my website. I've got my card up here with the site on it if you don't have that. So you can follow along each week as we go through the book of Exodus. We spent a year and a half going through Genesis. And as we've seen this, these first two weeks of Exodus, it, it flows right into and builds upon everything that we learned in Genesis. And especially today in chapter three. So quick summary in Exodus, what's happened so far? Chapters one and two. Not a trick question. What's happened so far? <laughs> Moses was born. Moses was born. Yep. And his birth was uh, significant because why? Because they were killing males. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in a genocidal regime uh, during the midst of this fear of these alien uh, immigrants known as the Hebrews, the fear that the Egyptians had of him. And so Pharaoh was miraculously born, I mean Moses was miraculously born and preserved despite Pharaoh's um, edict that all the male children should be killed. He was preserved through God's providence and who ended up um, raising Moses? His mother. She nursed him until he was old enough. Who raised him? Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's own daughter. Yeah, absolutely. So Moses grew up for the first three months of his life as an Hebrew and then as an Egyptian for the rest of his life. How long did the last chapter, chapter 2, how long a time period did it span? About 40. Yeah, thir between 36 and 40 years in one chapter. Moses' entire childhood and youth and uh, young adult life completely skipped over until he was 40. And then we hear that he went out and what did he do? He went to the well. He went to the well. Before that, before he went to the well, what sent him to the well? He ran out of Egypt. He left Egypt because, yeah, he was on the run. He tried to deliver his people. He tried to uh, to intercede on behalf of the weak, and he killed the guy. Whether it was accidental, whether it was intentional, we don't know. But we know he killed the guy. We really had to leave because uh, his attempt at enacting justice was not received by his fellow Hebrews. Their response to him when he tried to intervene on one of their behalf was, who made you ruler and judge over us? And in this chapter, we're gonna see the answer to that question. He could not answer it before, but now when he goes back, he will be able to answer it. So he flees to Midian, which is, does anybody know where Midian is? Saudi Arabia. Yeah, modern day Saudi Arabia. South of uh, Israel, down on the Saudi Peninsula. So he flees, he crosses the Sinai wilderness, what we know as the Sinai wilderness, that pizza-shaped wedge right beside Egypt. He crosses that, he goes over into Midian, 
and there he goes to the well. And if you were with us in the Genesis studies, you know what happens when you go to a well. You impress ladies. And he did. And once again, he ended up uh, getting hooked up with Zipporah, the daughter, the preacher's daughter, right? The daughter of the high priest of Midian. That's who he ended up marrying. So, again, the, the detail is very terse. We don't get life lessons. We don't get, you know, a story of his marriage and romance or anything like that. The Bible skips over all of that completely. And it just says that he... he entered into that society, the Midianites, entered into, became one of them through marriage, but yet retaining his Hebrew identity the whole time, as we'll see. So we get to chapter 3, and it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's tending the flocks, his father-in-law in another land. Does that sound familiar, Genesis studiers? Do we remember that the whole second half of the book of Genesis was devoted to a guy who that was his story as well? Met his wife at a well, mixed into a foreign family, tended the flocks of his father-in-law in a foreign land. Yeah, he's reliving Jacob. He's, he, this, is, this is tying us back or hearkening back to Genesis, to the patriarch narratives. Is putting Moses in that light. God's going to resume the promises that have seemed dormant for 400 years, that have seemed like God's forgotten. He's going to resume that, and there's a hint of it in the way this narrative is set up, with him being like another Jacob, like another Israel. So he's tending the flocks, comes to the far side of the wilderness. <clears throat> we don't know where it is. It's not down in the Sinai Peninsula where the traditional location is. Uh, if you go there, that's not where you tend flocks, and it's certainly not in Midian. So all of your Bibles, if they have maps in the back and they say Mount Sinai, there should be in parentheses, it should say traditional location, there should be a question mark. That's good, because it's not where he is. He's in Midian, where the real Mount Sinai is, or it's also called Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There, verse 2, there an angel, or excuse me, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? So Moses, is, Moses has plenty of experience with burning bushes. He stayed warm many a night out in the wilderness tending the flocks. He knows that bushes burn up like that. You put a little brush fire together, and if you don't have a lot of wood to keep putting on it, it goes out immediately. So. He's tending his flocks, he sees this bush, maybe he's tending, maybe he's you know, watching the sheep, looks over, bush is burning, uh, you know, brush fire, no big deal. Watching the sheep, it's still burning. Huh, let me go look at this. So he turns aside, it's just curiosity, just curiosity. But we know, as the text has already set up, that that bush, in that bush is the angel of the Lord. Genesis people, remember the angel of the Lord? We've met him before. When God appears in localized form, the angel of the Lord. We'll see, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, here am I. So, first it's the angel of the Lord in the bush, and then in this verse, it's the Lord in the bush. It's God in the bush. So which is it? Is it an angel? Is it God? If you remember from Genesis, yes. 
It's both. The angel of the Lord is a character throughout the Old Testament that we meet that is the Lord in localized appearance to a person. Angel just means messenger. That's all the word means is messenger. But the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, it's what's called Greek, excuse me, Hebrew scholars call it an appositional genitive. There's your party word for the day. Throw that one out next time. Appositional genitive. It's like the river Euphrates, right? It's not the river that belongs to someone named Euphrates. It's the river that is the Euphrates. Same way, this is the angel that is the Lord. God appearing in all of his glory uh, that spans the universe is able to appear in a localized form. It's able to make himself seen in a way that humans can somehow relate to. So with Abraham, it was in the form of a man and two other men. And when they went down to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, it'll be in the form of a person sometimes, a mysterious figure. Here it's a bush. Later it'll be a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. So it's God appearing to him. And this is, this is uh, the Bible is called a theophany. This is a fire theophany, the appearance of God in flames of fire. And he calls for Moses. Moses' response, here am I. Meaning, yes, it's like when we pick up the phone, hello? It's just a response. That's what the Hebrew word hanani just means, here am I. But he's not saying, here am I. It's just kind of a, it's just a response. Yeah, like, yes, you rang. Um, verse 5, do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, which is a guy named Amram. And I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God says, stop right where you are. Take your sandals off. You are no longer on normal sheep grazing land. You are on holy ground. Later, on the same mountain, God will tell the people of Israel as a whole, do not come near, set up boundary stones, because this mountain is holy ground. And the holiness that's described is, is the idea of God has set apart this area through his presence for the purpose of meeting face-to-face -face with people, his unmediated presence. And whenever you have God's unmediated presence in the Old Testament, particularly from here on out, there's always some boundaries put in place. There's always something to denote the, the, the separate, separate nature between humanity and God, between the holy and the common. And that's the dichotomy in the rest of Exodus. It's not between the holy and the evil or the holy and the unholy. It's between the holy and the common. There's normal stuff, normal life, normal ground, and then there's holy ground. And Moses is about to cross that threshold, and so God says, take off your shoes. Later, the priests, when, when God's setting up at the end of Exodus, setting up how the priesthood will operate, the priests will, will minister barefoot inside the tabernacle inside this miniature uh, holiness, sanctifying uh, presence of God. They'll, tell, they'll minister barefoot. And it's, and it's related to this, the idea of not bringing in common dirt and common muck and common whatever else you've stepped in into this area of holiness. So it's, it's already teaching through object lessons. It's teaching things about the nature of God. This whole chapter is revealing things about the nature of God, but it's doing it through visual, 
historical object lessons, which is what almost the entire rest of the Torah is. God is establishing truths about himself through vivid, easy to remember, easy to pass on, images, stories, ideas, visuals, and that's what he's doing here. He's a flame. He appears as a flame of fire. There's three times in the Bible that God is said to be something, like the phrase, God is blank. That only appears three times in the entire Bible. One time, God is love, New Testament. One time, God is light, book of Hebrews. And then also, excuse me, in 1 John, then also in Hebrews, God is a consuming fire. Those are the three things God's ever said specifically to be. God is love, God is light, God is a consuming fire. And these give us insight into the nature of God. And here he's appearing in this form of a burning fire, a flame. And that lets us know the nature of God and his holiness. Uh, holiness is a concept that we don't get a lot of times. If we were raised in the Bible Belt, we think holiness means what you don't do. You know, I don't gamble, I don't play cards, I don't go to R-rated <laughs> movies, I don't dance, I don't do, you know, those are the things, and that makes you holy. Not at all. Not at all. Holiness, the holiness of God is like, think of the holiness of a blast furnace. And you put in something, a metal, a hunk of ore that's impure, a mixture of purity and impurity, and you put it in a blast furnace, and all the debris and all the dross and all the impurity is blasted away. And what remains is the pure and the pristine. That's an image of the holiness of God. His God is like, his holiness is that of a blast furnace that blows away, destroys, consumes all that, that stands before him, and only the holy can remain. So that there has to be preparation. You can't just walk into the presence of God in the Old Testament. You can't just go up and, and you know, Jesus is not your homeboy, uh, so to speak, in the Old Testament setting. Like God, Yahweh is not your homeboy. Like He is the unapproachable God who dwells in splendor, glory, majesty, fire, flame, smoke, lightning, thunder, all the stuff that's going to happen throughout Exodus. That's the God we serve. And it's a God that we don't always remember because we're on this side of the cross. We're on the side of the cross where Jesus bridged that gap, tore the curtain, made it so that we can approach God in faith, but God hasn't changed. Jesus has changed the situation for us. So it's something for us to remember when we're, when we're slipping into the New Testament kind of, yeah, you know, God is love, God is warm fuzzies, you know, me and God, we have our thing, and you know, yeah, that's true. But it's the same God who appeared in Exodus. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's the same God. It's the God Jesus worshiped. So, so we should remember that. This, this is the first use of the word holy in the entire Bible, by the way. First time the word holy is ever used is in this verse. The word Kodesh means holy, means sacred, set apart. So it's something that, that we want to keep in mind. And Moses' reaction, verse 8, is the right one. When Moses realized, hey, this isn't just a burning bush. This is the God of the universe. What did he do? He hid his face. He hid his face. He, he was scared. Immediately, he was scared. And he had every right to be scared because he was approaching the unapproachable. But yet, this unapproachable God, this Lord of all creation, this sovereign king, was the one who beckons him to come forward. There's a provision, take off your shoes, but there's still the come forwards. Come here, I'm talking to you. I've come down to commune with you. I'm going to talk to you face to face. Even though the belief was no one can see God and live, yet God could condescend to a form where people could interact with him and could not only live, 
but could also thrive and lead his people as a result. So all of this is swirling in the mind of Moses right now. He thought he was just tending sheep. He thought he was just doing the everyday mundane, yeah, you know, punching in the clock, going to go tend the sheep, take them over to the poor old mountain of God, let them graze for a while, come home in a few days, maybe a few weeks, same old, same old. Been doing it for 40 years. But this day was different, out of the ordinary. This is the day that God showed up. And there's a lesson to me in that. God shows up throughout Scripture in the times when people are just doing their day-to-day life. There's so many times where people are just life as usual, and then, bam, God appears to them. And their whole world has changed. You can see that when you're reading Scripture. You know how many times that happens, you know? They're fishing in a boat. Jesus walks up and follows me. Right? Gideon threshing wheat on the bottom of a, a threshing floor. Angel of the Lord appears to him. All these people doing their normal everyday life. Moses tending sheep. And all of a sudden the God of the universe appears to him. So, when you go back to your cubicle, and you're just typing your spreadsheets, remember that. God <laughs> could very well show up and rock your world in the midst of your task on Microsoft Office. Um, so, Verse 7, the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. In Hebrew, I know their suffering. That verb to know, the same verb of Adam, knowing his wife Eve. There's an intimate knowledge. God is, uh, commentators, if you read through commentaries on Exodus, they say that the language God's using is not just I'm concerned about but I, I am entering into, I am experiencing along with you your suffering. I am, I am, I am the word compassion means, means literally to suffer alongside. Ko and pedos, to suffer alongside. And that's kind of the sense of, I, am, I, I haven't been aloof. I haven't been ignoring your suffering. I know it. I know it intimately. And God says, so... Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a wordplay in there. God's saying, I've come down to bring them up. I've come down. I, I'm going to come and I'm going to act in history. I'm going to do something. I'm going to enter into this world of space and time and dirt and sweat and slavery and oppression and I'm going to lead them out. I'm going to bring them up. I'm going to raise them up, this, this nation of slaves. They're toiling away in the brick factories of Egypt. I'm going to bring them up into a land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The imagery gets lost on this kind of, but where do you get milk? Not a good question. Where do you get milk? Cows. <laughs> right. I mean, you can milk anything with nipples, but uh, you get milk from cows and goats. Cows and goats. Where do you get honey? Bees. Bees, right. Or grapes and dates. The, the juice from grapes and dates was something in Hebrew called honey as well. Uh, even though it's not technically honey, but regardless. So, bees, and what do bees need to live on? Flowers, vegetation. What do cows and goats and anything else you want to milk need to live on? Vegetation, grass. That's the imagery. As he's saying this is going to be a lush land, a pastoral land. Land flowing with milk and honey means there's enough to graze the crops, grow the flowers, to take care of everything. The land is just oozing goodness, so to speak. So it's an image. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image in our minds. But it's what God is saying. I'm going to bring you out of slavery. And 
it says it right in verse, the end of verse 8, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Where have we heard that list of names before? Anybody remember? You know there's going to be a test, did you? <laughs> Actually expect that you're paying attention. Yeah, in Genesis, way back, Genesis 15, God told Abraham, Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is one of those verses or chapters, just in your mind, have it highlighted. Right? Just even if you don't know exactly why it's important, just know that Genesis 15 is important. And then go back and read it. Because it's super important. It's the covenant where God promises the land to Abraham's descendants, to his seed. The land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. Their land. And God says in Genesis 15 to Abraham, your offspring are going to be enslaved for, uh, in a foreign land for 400 years, but I will bring them up out into the land. I'm not going to bring them into the land now because the iniquity of the people that are living there has not yet reached its full measure. If God were to give Israel that land before now, he would be an unjust God because the people at that point had not reached the time in which they were ripe for judgment. Their iniquity has not been filled to its full measure. We often you know, think, oh, well, God just gave him the land because he likes Israel better. No. If you read through the rest of the Torah, God says, I'm taking you out of Egypt, and I don't want you to do the things the Egyptians did, and I'm going to take you into Canaan. And I don't want you to do the things the Canaanites have done. In fact, I want you to drive them out of the land completely because they have polluted the land, and I am making the land vomit them out is God's imagery that he used. The Canaanites' wickedness was so horrible as a whole, collective. Now, there were righteous ones individually, and some of them were spared. We read about them, people like Rahab and others. But as a whole, the iniquity, the evil of the Canaanites was so bad that God's judgment on them was not to flood the earth like he did in Noah's day, but to flood the land with Israel, driving them out. That's the plan. That's the purpose. So we have to keep in mind, God's judgment is against Egypt, and it's also, at the same time, going to be against the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And what do you mean wickedness? Like, what, they just listened to bad music and swore a lot? or what? No, child sacrifice, ritual prostitution as a means of worship, uh, crazy amounts of incestuous, uh, power-hungry, exploitative, just everything you can imagine, evil. That's what the Canaanites were involved in. That's why their caste is so wicked. That's why they're right for God's judgment. So there's a hint at it, and that'll be fulfilled later after God brings them out of Egypt. But verse 9, Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now God just said in the verse right before that, God just said, I will come down and bring them up. And now he says, go, you will bring them up out of Egypt. There's a reason, there's a, there's, there's a purpose in that. God's actions in the Exodus are going to happen through Moses. And later we see Aaron. God's going to act through his human servant to accomplish these things. In tandem with him, Moses is going to be a co-laborer with Yahweh in the Exodus. They're both going to be said to be doing these things. 
So yes, God will be the one that sends the hail and the locusts and splits the sea, but not without Moses raising his staff or casting it on the ground or sticking it into the ocean. Moses takes part in the redemptive acts that God himself is doing, and that's the way God designs it. That's the way God wants it. And so we see a key in that, and it's found throughout Scripture. But, I mean, God could have chosen. Think about it. God could have totally pulled a Star Trek, just beamed him out of the land into the promised land. He can do that. He's done it with some people, you know, take them up one place and put them down in another. We see that in Scripture. God's capable of doing that, but he doesn't. He does the exodus in a way that requires the faithful obedience of not just a leader, but also, as we get into the later chapters, there's going to be a requirement on the part of the people. God will do the delivering, but the people will be the ones who have to put the blood around the frames of their door to participate, to partake in that deliverance. There is an action on the part of humans when it comes to the deliverance of God, and God is the one that sovereignly set it up that way. He accomplishes the deliverance. He accomplishes the salvation. Nobody in Israel could say, we saved ourselves from Egypt. But yet they had a part that they had to choose to play as well. And that in no way compromises the sovereignty of God. And that becomes a paradigm for the rest of the Bible of salvation, is how God saved Israel. So we'll look at this objection, and then we'll cut it off and pick it up next week. But Verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So here now God gives Moses a sign. And this is where translation differences pop their head up again. God says three sentences. He says, I will be with you. Period. This will be a sign to you that it's I who sent you, period. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain, period. The question is, that middle one, this will be a sign, what's that referring to? Is it referring to that first sentence, I will be with you and this will be the sign, like your sign, the sign that I'm, is, is my presence? Or is it referring to the second sentence, when you've done it and come back and worship me, then you'll know that I've sent you. If it's the first, then God's promising his presence and a reassuring sign to accompany Moses throughout his journey. If it's the second, which is how the NIV and others translate it, they turn that second period into a semicolon, if you look on your text, if that's what you're reading. If it's the second, then what God's saying is pretty funny. He's saying, you want a sign? When you do it and it works, then you'll know I sent you. And so it becomes a stretch of faith for Moses. So it's all depending on how you translate it. I think the latter is more accurate because not just of knowing how God works, but because of how it's set up in the text. But it could be either or. But God's, God's going to give him a sign, but it's going to require obedience on his part. Even if the sign is God's presence, he still has to go and do it to experience the presence of God with him. So the sign that Moses asks for, God says, I'll give it to you as you're going and doing this. Not before. You've got to go. Take the step and you'll be confirmed along the way. So Moses said then, second part, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I cause to be what I cause to be. Any of those three are perfectly right translations. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and that's I am. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I'm to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what's been done in Egypt, and I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders will listen to you. And you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, I am the God of the Hebrews who's met with us. Allow us to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to I am, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God reveals his name to Moses and says, This is the name that you are to remember me by for all generations. God has a name. Like I have a name, J.M. God has a name, Yahweh. And that's the name that he's going to tell uh, Moses to tell the Israelites. And there's a lot about that name that reveals who God is. And there's a whole really interesting history about how we got to this concept of the Lord when in fact his name is Yahweh. And even how these weird branches of Christianity like Jehovah's Witness popped up all in relationship to the name but it's one o'clock, so <laughs> next week we'll pick it back up and we'll look at the name and we'll look at the mission that he gives Moses. So if you want some seconds, grab some. Uh, if you are want to know how to get image or get the video from each week, here's my card. Take it. Hop on the website. I'm going to go upload the video right after this session.